0: We are really blessed tonight. We've got a kind of little two-week window here that uh, we ask uh, Don Willingham if he would step in and teach for us. Uh, Don is a very gifted teacher. He uh, had a rough upbringing. His daddy was a preacher. And uh, despite being a PK, uh, he came through it in, in good shape. Uh, Don has preached numerous places. In fact, he's preached for us here at the colonies, and he always does a wonderful job. And um, a couple of weeks ago, he did the uh, communion, and uh, we were talking then the next day, or a couple of days later, in our staff meeting. And uh, Daniel said, You know, when he told the story about Abraham and sacrificing his son and Jesus being sacrificed, he said, I was in tears. He would uh, really touched his heart, and Don really has that uh, privilege to do that. Don's wife uh, has Parkinson's and uh, has really been through a lot and is in a difficult situation, and we want to remember her as we pray. She's a lovely Christian lady and uh, has really been suffering with uh, Parkinson and is unable to do very much. Don told me the other day that she'd not been out of bed in eight days so it's really a tough situation and tough on him, too. But he is really a good caregiver and does a wonderful job with her and everything. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Then we'll just turn it over to Don. Dear Lord, we love you and are grateful for the many ways you've blessed us. We're thankful that we can be here tonight and study from your Word. We just pray for Don as he gives us the lesson tonight. And may we be people who are not only hearers but doers of your Word. We just pray, dear Father, for his wife and for the difficulty she's having. We just pray that you will strengthen her, dear God, and bless her and and just give her peace. We know, Lord, you can do all things. We ask you to work in her life in a powerful way. Bless our class tonight, dear Father, in Jesus' holy name, Mr. Don Willingham. Don?
1: That's kind of a hard intro to follow. Thank you, Dick. There was a couple of things I'd ask you to say that you forgot, but you got most of it. I do appreciate uh, getting to do this. It's always a privilege when I'm asked to teach or to preach here at the Colonies, and I I consider that a privilege. I really do. Um, And as far as Karina goes, uh, she sent her love to all of you tonight as I left. said to tell you she loved you and she missed being here. Uh, She is out of bed for the most part in the day now. She's having great difficulty walking and and has a lot of trouble talking. For some reason when she coughs now, or talks now, she coughs out of control and we're not sure what's causing that. She had a cold and uh, is having trouble shaking that, but you know, Parkinson's also makes it very difficult for you to speak. And so uh, she has trouble getting words out sometimes and then when she does, she just starts coughing uncontrollably. So I just tell her to be quiet all the time. And, uh, you know, that's not something she does very easily. But I'll just say, I'll just do all the talking and you listen And It's worked out really well for me. She's come a long way from where she was before. There's a lot she had to give up. She cut hair for 25 years. She was the aerobic coordinator at Amarillo College for 13 years. She not only had about 12 or 14 classes a week, but she trained all the other instructors and hired them. And it was really hard for her to give all that up, obviously. But it just came a time. She said the last time she was cutting hair, the guy asked her if she was cold because she was shaking so bad. She said, yeah, maybe I am, so she put her jacket on. She said, I don't know why people are so scared when I come at them with scissors shaking like that, but (laughs) she decided maybe she better give it up. But we do appreciate all of you, and um, appreciate whoever is responsible for the pie that was dropped at our house over Thanksgiving. There's always so much love coming from you guys, and and we feel that, and we really do appreciate it, and we know we're in the right place. Um, You know, just having a couple weeks to speak, I wasn't sure... What to talk about exactly, because it's hard to get anything too deep. I did want to start a little mini-series with you, if that's okay. There are some additional lessons in this series that I've taught before. Um, and maybe down the road, if I get a chance to teach again, we'll just continue with it. But we'll get as far as we can. And uh, Dick said y'all usually let out at 10 o'clock on Wednesday night, so that should be enough time tonight to cover this. <laughs> before we get started, let's look at a key text for our lesson tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Second Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen, Paul says, "Now this, now the uh, Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is Spirit." So biblically, what happens when uh, before I'm in the Lord? This is before I become a child of God. The Bible says that I have this veil over my face which blinds me or keeps me from seeing the benefits of being in the Lord. And see, that's the problem with the world. They can't see that. I can't see what God's done for me or what he's doing in my life. It's not visible to me. But Paul says when I come to faith and when I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and I now have salvation, that veil is lifted. I can now clearly see it's taken away. Now that I'm in Christ, the penalty of my sin is taken care of. In other words, the blood of Christ now takes away my sin, and I become what we have uh, called now a babe in Christ. You've heard of that before, a babe in Christ. I'm actually starting my life all over again. And now that I have this salvation in my life, it's like I'm brand new. It's like I'm being born again, and we call it that. Now that God's list lifted this veil, I also have freedom. And in freedom, God gives me what, is, what he calls the abundant life. But I have to go get that abundant life. It doesn't just fall on my lap. And how I do that is I walk in the Spirit with God, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, it says, there's freedom. And he calls this a transformation. When you transform something, we all know what that is, it turns into something totally different, Than what it was originally. I think we're all familiar with the toys that a lot of little boys play with for a long time. And maybe the movies, the Transformers. And they have the little cars and you just keep unfolding them. And pretty soon it's like a robot or something else it turns into. Well, that's kind of the same with our transformation. In other words, God takes me from being a babe in Christ. And as I slowly give my heart or my life over to him, he changes or transforms me into a new creature or into a new state of maturity if you will because now I'm supposed to grow up in Christ not supposed to stay a baby I'm supposed to grow up now I want you to notice out of this text that I am not the agent of my transformation I can't change myself rather my job is to submit to God and his will and his spirit for he is the agent of my transformation. I'm merely the object of it. So if I want to change my life, I don't do it on my own. I submit to God and He changes it for me. There are, however, some misconceptions about maturity. Many believe that once you're in Christ, that that you've given your life over to Him or you've been baptized, that maturity simply comes from knowledge. And they believe that You just have to know a whole lot about the Bible in order to be mature. And in all fairness, that is a huge part of maturity, right? You got to know the Word of God. You got to have it in your heart. But the truth is, I can know the Bible from cover to cover and be just as immature as I can be. That doesn't change anything. There's a lot of really smart, well-versed babies throughout the world in the church. That's because maturity in Christ is more than just knowledge. Maturity is the willingness to submit my life to Jesus so that he can totally transform my life day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, throughout the entirety of my life. I'm always maturing. And unlike mortal maturity, which we normally say, according to science, a person matures around 18 to 20 years. However, having three daughters, I would argue that point. But the Christian never stops maturing. You never quit growing spiritually, because the day you do, you're spiritually dead. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I'm living in the world and I have this anger problem. And we've run into people like that from time to time, even just on the highway. I'm amazed at how angry people are when they drive. They just get so angry. Um, And I saw a guy the other day, he just fought and fought to get around me. He finally got around me and he was one car ahead of me at the light. And I thought, well, that really paid off for you, didn't it? He got up one whole car, nearly killed both of us, but he got it done. And because of this anger problem that I have, I alienate people from me because when I get angry, I scream at people and I eventually drive them away. And I might even alienate somebody that I love. I might ruin my marriage because of that anger and my friends feel uncomfortable around me you may know somebody like that you see I have this problem but the problem with that is that I can't see it because I have a veil over my face I'm blinded to my own problem even though it's destroying my life I can't see it clearly now I give my life over to Jesus now the blood of Jesus sets me free and it pays the penalty of that sin now don't misunderstand me The blood of Jesus doesn't get rid of the anger. It just covers the sin from the anger. Does that make sense? Now that I'm a new creature over time, Jesus is going to transform me, and as I mature, I'll give that anger over to Him, and He's going to replace it with the fruit of the Spirit, which in this case is gentleness. I'm going to go from being angry to being gentle. And that's called spiritual maturity. You go from a tyrant to a gentle giant. But you see, this is the reason that as a church we always have to make sure that we get out of the judgment business. We have to learn to take people where they are right now because even though their sin may be forgiven up front as they submit to the will of God, they're not yet transformed into a new creature. So we still see the same problems in them and in turn we judge them believing that they haven't changed at all. And that's not our call and it's probably not true either. They probably have changed a little bit already because they've already submitted to something that they never submitted to before. Our duty is to take them where they are right now and to help them over time to nurture and love them through this transformation and maturity process. Do you remember how your mom and dad used to look at you and they'd say grow up will you? Or they say act your age. You know kinda as if simply by willing it you could change your level of maturity in a split second you know, and act a whole lot older than you really were. As a rule, we know that children generally act the age that they really are, with a few exceptions. And of course, it's the same with people who are babes in Christ. But it's always amazed me how we expect babes in Christ, or people who are not even born again in Christ, to look like a uh, mature spiritual adult. They're just not going to look like that. If your own children require teaching and nourishment, In order to mature over a long period of time, it's going to be the same with Christians coming into the church. There's a newsletter that I used to read. It was called The Last Day's Newsletter, and I always liked some of the things that this author would say. His name was Leonard Ravenhill. And on one particular time, he tells about these group of tourists that were visiting a a picturesque village. And they walk by this old man who's sitting beside a fence, and in a rather patronizing way, one of them looks over him and said, Were there any great men born in this village? Kind of snotty like. And the old man sat there and scratched his head for a minute and he said, nope, only babies. There's (laughs) there's no instant heroes. And whether it's in the world or in the kingdom of God, it takes time. Even spiritual leadership has to be earned over a long period of time. And we have to be patient and understanding with those who've not yet matured, and sometimes I've found that those who seem most grown up are the most immature. Even though sometimes they have a lot of education, they haven't matured yet. This is interesting, in a library in the University of Montana years ago someone found some graffiti that was uh, written on one of the shelves, and here's what it said, E equals MC squared, and it was signed Albert Einstein top honor science major. And then under it, someone wrote, very good Albert, but next time show your work. C plus, Grace Witherspoon, seventh grade physics teacher. But now let's talk about the guy who's been, or the gal, who's been in the church for 25 or 30 years, but's never matured. And these people exist. And I've kind of, I, I know I, I'm a little smart, I like some time, but I've developed a name for these kinds of Christians, I call it the Peter Pan syndrome. You all remember who Peter Pan was, right? My youngest daughter, Christian, years ago, when she was real small, had a crush on Peter Pan. She would watch the Peter Pan movie 10 or 15 times a day. It just, it got to where it drove me crazy. I had to hide the movie finally, because I'd memorized every word and every song, and it was just, you know, she came in, Dad, have you seen that movie? I said, it's not in there? Well, maybe you should watch something else, honey. I don't know, you have some other movies. And it really didn't bother me at first that she had a crush on him, and then I got to thinking that she was in love with a guy that runs around with fairies and wears tights. <laughs> so I thought, maybe, maybe that's not the best idea. But if you recall, Peter Pan was a little boy who didn't ever want to grow up. He refused to. He proclaimed that being a kid was fun. It was nothing but play, no responsibilities. And I can tell you that after being an adult for many years now, I often think the same thing. I kind of wish I could be a kid again. I thought how good I had it when I was living at home with my mom and dad. I didn't have any responsibilities but go to school, play sports, do my homework. That was it. They took care of every need for me, yet I thought it was pretty tough at the time. I remember my older daughter, Kara, um, years ago, just couldn't wait to get out of the house. Dad, I want to go to college and I want to have a job and I I just want to grow up. I want to be my own person. I said, honey, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Well, she finally got that opportunity, and she came home one night from work, and she's all worn out. She goes, Dad, I think being an adult really stinks. She goes, I just wish I could be a kid again. (laughs) I said, yeah, it does stink sometimes, honey. I've wished for that sometimes myself. But, of course, you don't realize that until it's gone. But Peter Pan Christians, as I call them, refuse to grow up. Now, they come in with good intentions, and they're on fire. They may attend regularly, but they never really mature. They don't read the Word. They don't acquire any wisdom or knowledge. They just kind of freeze in the state that they were in originally, or they are presently, and they never quite mature spiritually. And I'm actually convinced that the biggest problems in the church that we've had over many, many years, over many decades, come from immature Christians. That's where they come from and it's an epidemic, but if we're known for anything here at the colonies, I pray that it will be for our maturity. I want when people come in here that they see that we're grown up, that we treat each other with respect, especially those who are visiting here, of course. So this type of Christian still has this anger because they haven't matured, they're still running people off in the world and maybe even in the church and he gets upset because he can't have his way. What does a a small child do if they get upset and they can't have the way? They throw a fit, right? And they may even make a threat. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just leave. I'll just leave, and I'll take this guy with me. (laughs) You know, that's happened a lot, and I've seen this. This, And I'm not talking particularly about here, but I've been in a lot of churches in my life, and I've seen this. It's widespread, and this comes from a lack of maturity. I remember years ago, Karina and I decided we'd raise some English Bulldogs. I never thought I would give $1,200 for a dog. I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. She wanted a dog that was $1,200. I said, I'm not going to do it, honey. Well a girl at work just happened to buy a Bulldog puppy and she had a little boy that was five years old. And about three weeks, she knew how much my wife wanted a puppy. About five weeks later she came in and she said, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either buy my puppy or my son. But one of them's leaving. She said, I can't handle those two together. They're tearing my house apart. So, of course, I took the son. No, I'm I took the puppy. And uh, then I got to thinking, well, you know, if people give that much money, why wouldn't I want the female? Why wouldn't I want to breed bulldog puppies? That sounded easy. So I looked all over the country on the internet and finally found the right female at the right age, the right color, the right paperwork, yada, yada, in Atlanta, Georgia. Tried to fly her here two or three times. They kept bumping her, and, of course, it was in the winter, and she was sitting out in the cold. So finally, my middle daughter, Lindsay, and I took off on a Friday evening after work, and we drove straight through to Atlanta, Georgia, picked that dog out, came back at 6 o'clock on Sunday evening, and I went back to work the next morning. By then, I hated that dog already. I thought, I just paid almost $2,000, if you count my trip, for a dog, and I didn't rest all weekend, and now I've got to go back to work. But long story short, our first litter took... Now, bulldogs can't breed naturally, so they have to have pretty much everything that a woman would. You've got to have your um, artificial insemination. you've got to do your sonograms, you've got to have a C-section. I mean, it's just like going through that process all over again when my kids were born. And we're standing there in the delivery room, and the nurse and the doctor just keep pulling these puppies out. Normally, they have three or four. We were up to eight already, all right? And my wife and my daughters are all crying. And I'm standing over going, God, ching <laughs> Right? And Karina looked at me and she goes, it's not about the money. I said, of course it's about the money. <laughs> Why do you think we did this? We've already got two pets. These are for money. I was thinking, 1200 2400 what's the next one? Just adding that up in my head. Well, they had 10 eventually, but only Adam of them lived. But then we found out the mother didn't have enough milk, so guess what? The vet said, You need to bottle feed these eight puppies every three hours for the next eight weeks. I said, Man, Karina, that's going to be hard on you. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. So we arranged a schedule with our daughters and we got up in the middle of the night and fed these puppies for eight weeks. And of course, we had no trouble selling them. I could have sold 10 times that many. My phone just kept ringing. But boy, were we ever glad when the day came when we could feed those dogs some meat. Right? I mean, they were over there eating on their own, just whatever they want. We didn't have to go out there and feed them anymore. They were just, they were maturing, and they went from milk to meat. You know, it's a natural law of God for us to mature both physically and spiritually. So how do we get rid of that old self? How do we get rid of the immature self? Well, just like the Scripture said, we give it to Christ, who will transform us into His likeness, and by doing so... We mature in him. It's a natural process. It's not normal to stay little, whether it be physical or spiritual. It's not normal. So having said all that, the foundation for our spiritual maturity for tonight, step one is authenticity. I just want to talk to you just a moment about that. Authenticity. Webster defines authentic as not false or copied, genuine or real. Authentic is telling the truth about me. And in my case, I'm sorry, it's not a very pretty story. If I tell you the whole truth, you probably will not want to hear it all. Like, I've heard enough. Anyone who's been through AA knows that the first step in the 12-step process is what? Does anybody know? It's admitting you have a problem. Right? The first step in maturing in Christ is no different. You first have to admit who you really are, what your problem really is. And it's different for all of us. Your problem may be different from everybody else's. Or it may be the same as somebody else over here. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You have to be authentic. In other words, what you see is what you get, good or bad. Just be authentic. And I don't know about you, but I much more respect a person who openly admits their faults and their shortcomings than someone who tells me they don't have any at all. I think we've seen that in the government here in the (laughs) recent past, haven't we? Haven't done anything wrong. It's been great. You have to be willing to say, God, you saved me and you set me free from my sin, but the reality is I'm still a liar, or I still have a problem with lust, or I still have a problem with anger, etc. You see, God already knows all that. Of course he does. He's God. He's just waiting for us to take this vital step toward maturity or authenticity, admitting to him willingly who you are, Lord this is who I am down inside. I've been on my knees many times begging God for you to say, God, you know who I am, and I'm sorry for some of those things because I'm not proud of them. But that's who I am, and I need you to help me change that. But we have to be authentic. We have to quit living in denial because only when you admit that you have a problem that the healing and the maturity process can actually begin, just like in AA. You've got to admit you've got a problem. I guess if we were going to have that here, I'd say, Hi, my name's Don, I'm a sinner. <laughs> That's the way we'd start out. So, I'm going to give you three quick reasons why Christians are not authentic. Number one, Satan has power over unconfessed sin. I'm going to read two verses from Romans 6 and 7, and you tell me if this might possibly have ever sounded like you in your life sometimes. First, Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now there's a spiritual reality here in regard to authenticity that I think we need to understand. He says, you're going to be a slave to something. That's just a given. You're going to be a slave to something. Everybody is. You're either a slave to Satan and to the bondage of sin in your life or you are a slave to the Holy Spirit of God. It's one or the other. Then look at what Paul says in Romans 7, 23 and 24. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Boy, you gotta love Paul, don't you? Paul constantly admitted how, what a terrible guy he was. I am chief among sinners, he said. Yet he turned around and said, but I'm the most qualified to be an apostle of anybody because <laughs> of what I've suffered. But he didn't deny that he was a sinner, did he? I'm chief among sinners. He says, I'm a wretched man. He's saying there's this war going on in your mind and in your flesh. My dad used to say, the mind is willing and the flesh is weak to me all the time. That's what he'd tell me. In other words, we're in bondage by sin. And until we become authentic and until we admit who we really are, we cannot be free from that bondage of sin. You may be free from the penalty of sin through your salvation, but you haven't been set free from the power of sin because it's still unconfessed. So uh, say I have a jealousy problem. A lot of people may realize that. It's in this war that it's waged in my mind against the law of Christ. And it's wrecking my marriage. It's wrecking my friendship. It's pushing my friends away. It's dominating my life. And I'm not sure what to do about that. I know I have this problem, but I I don't know what to do about it. Well, I'm going to tell you what to do. You just confess it. You just confess it openly. You say, this is who I am, this is what I have a problem with. Because once you admit you have a problem, once you become authentic, then you can deal with the problem head on and the healing process will begin. Does that make sense? But if you don't confess that sin, you'll remain in bondage to the evil one, he says here, for the rest of your life and you'll never be set free to enjoy what God calls the abundant life. And there's a lot of redeemed Christians, I'm afraid, who are walking around in bondage simply because they're not being authentic. Number two, confession sets us free from Satan's bondage. As long as that sin remains in the dark, you remain in bondage because Satan rules darkness. He rules darkness. But when I bring that sin out into the light and we know that God is light, right? Then the Holy Spirit will set me free from that bondage of that sin and I can get on with the abundant life. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't be tempted anymore. But now that that bondage is broken and the sin has been brought to light, in the future it's going to make it easier for me to overcome it. I now have the power to overcome it because I've admitted it openly. I have a problem with this. Before it's confessed, I'm powerless in this war against it. An alcoholic, by the way, is powerless over his problem until he brings it public And by doing so, he is now empowered to fight it. That's why they make them admit, I have a problem. I'm an alcoholic. That's why they say it out loud. It gives them power now to say, I have a problem and I'm going to fight it. And not hide it in the darkness any longer. See, sin always hides in the darkness. Have you ever noticed that nightclubs are always dark? Places of ill repute don't have any windows on them. That's because some of the most hideous crimes are committed in society, and and the worst sins are committed in the darkness. Sin dwells in darkness. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another. I know you're familiar with this. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. He's not just talking about physical healing here. He's talking about healing from the bondage of sin. But you have to be real about who you are in order to be healed. That's when you begin the maturing process. And do you know when you stop maturing? When you die. <laughs> when you die. We'll still be tempted along the way, but you don't stop maturing until you die. And the way you get through that is you just walk that out in faith with God every day. One day at a time, you walk your faith out with God. So I'm going to ask you, in light of all this, what's so hard about confessing our faults to each other. Why is that so hard for us? I think it used to be really hard for me. But then, when I screwed up pretty bad in life years ago, and I wanted to get back into the ministry again, I didn't think it was going to be possible, but I realized I'm going to have to just admit my sin. I'm just going to tell everybody, and they can either accept me or not, but I I need God to know that I'm aware of it. And you know what? God surprised me. He surprised me. I had told Karina when we first married, I wanted to preach again. She said, well, just go preach. And it's not quite that easy, honey. Not quite that easy. If you've messed up, it's kind of hard to get back in. But boy, was I wrong. Because once I confessed that sin, it just kind of fell into my lap. Opportunities began to open up over and over again. And from the pulpit, I've said many times, I'm a sinner. I know that. And I've made mistakes. I know that. But I just try to walk out that faith every day and not commit those same sins again. But why are we so afraid of confessing our sins to each other? You know why? Because we're afraid of the consequences. And there's a reason for that. We are afraid that if we take that step towards spiritual maturity, those that we confess it to might not be mature enough to handle it. See, when somebody confesses something to you about their sin, that's not really something for you to go tell everybody else. That's for them to tell. If they want to confess that to somebody else, that's up to them. That's confidential. But often it doesn't remain that way, and people know that. So they're afraid to confess their sin to anybody because they realize if it gets out, it could cause them some problems. That happens very often. We open up, and instead of understanding and encouragement, we receive judgment. That person may not take it too well. You, you did what? I mean, I've seen this happen in the church. I had one lady say, well, I'd never do that. I said, you don't have any sin? Well, I don't have that sin. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Maturity works two ways, both on the part of the confessor and also on the part of the recipient of the confessions. So they were afraid because what could happen? Well, they could lose their position in the church. They possibly could lose their job. It could ruin their marriage. You know, you don't know. They could lose the respect of everyone around them. But here's me. See, I'm not going to be guilty of criticizing another man or a woman for what they've admitted to me publicly when I'm still in bondage of my own sin. Because he's authentic and I'm not. There's probably something I haven't confessed, and he has. I'm still holding my sin inside. So I have no room to criticize that. but he's living in the light, I'm still living in the darkness. Finally, number three, authenticity allows us to fulfill God's purpose. God's purpose for us as Christians, once we come into to Christ, is to grow up. <laughs> it's to grow up, to spiritually mature so that we can witness to others in the world about him. And so they might be free too from the bondage of sin. See how that works? But we have to be mature first before we can help someone else be mature. By becoming authentic and maturing, we reflect the glory of Christ. Remember the first scripture that we read? And when others see that reflection, they're drawn to him as well, and thereby we fulfill the purpose of God in our life when we do that in reality people in the world admit it or not hate who they are. Did you know that? They do. They hate who they are. And the way you know that is because they chase after everything in the world to try to make them more happy. They're not happy. They don't like their life for the most part and they're always thinking it'll be better tomorrow if I do this or if I have that. Hollywood's the best example of that. You talk about a bunch of miserable people got all the money in the world and they're miserable. They're not happy. They hate their life. But see, they don't understand that it's Satan that has them by the throat. They don't know what's causing the misery. They don't understand it's him. And here's the thing we've got to be careful about. We've got to make sure that people aren't afraid to come in here and to be a part of us. I know that sounds silly. It's like, well, our doors are open and we've got to sign out and we advertise and everybody's welcome. And yeah, I would admit, the colonies is that way for the most part. But let me tell you how people feel about that. They're afraid about coming to church... Because the church has a bad reputation of being full of what? Hypocrites, right? Isn't that what we've all heard? And You're just a bunch of hypocrites. I used to tell people where I preached, i said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, we're just doing our best to overcome that, but we probably are a little hypocritical at times, and I'm sorry about that. We're just sinners saved by grace trying to do our best to serve God. We're not perfect. But the problem with that is, because they believe that, they don't believe they can find the answer here because they're only going to be judged if they walk through those doors back there. So here's how we're going to eliminate that problem for worldly people. Are you ready? i thought about this for a long time because, you know, this is deep. We're not going to be hypocrites anymore. (laughs) See, that's the way we do that. We're not going to be hypocrites. Now, there's two ways we can accomplish that. First, I can either quit sinning, And just be perfect from now on. Well, that ain't going to happen. Right? Or number two, I can be authentic about who I am. Which makes me no better than the next guy and gives me absolutely no room to judge anyone. If a person in the world comes in here and says, this church is full of hypocrites, I'm going to say, no, we're not. Let me tell you about my sin. And they're going to say, oh, you've sinned too? Yep, I sure have. Well, now you've, They don't have anything else to say about that. You've stolen their ammunition by being authentic in the eyes of God. Hey, brother or hey, sister, I'm a sinner too. Let me share something with you, and let me tell you what God's done for me about that. See, authenticity not only frees you from the bondage of sin, but it gives you influence to reach out for others to do the same for Christ. And let me tell you, people respect you a whole lot more for being authentic than for your knowledge or for your influence or for your power. If you're just real with them, they'll like you a whole lot more. If we take the hypocrisy off the table, I believe people will flood through our doors. Just be who we are. Don't be afraid to admit you're a sinner. That you're above that because we're not. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we we have to get past our pride. We have to get past our judgment and we have to realize that we too are sinners. Winston Churchill was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech the hall is packed to overflowing? It's quite flattering, replied Sir Winston, but whenever I feel that way I always remember that if instead of making a political speech I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. Very quickly, Let me tell you what we have to overcome more than anything in order to be authentic. We have to overcome fear. Satan convinces me that if I try to be authentic, if I tell all of you about my sin, if I tell you about my past, that you won't accept me. That this church won't accept me. Satan tells me that. But here's what I've found. I've found that the minister of this church, who knows quite a bit about me, <laughs> and the elders who know quite a bit about me, maybe not everything, <laughs> we'll hold that for another time. <laughs> if they accept me, they'll accept anybody. And that's the truth. I can't tell you what it's, it's meant to my life to be accepted here. I'm like Paul, I'm chief among sinners. And if that disappoints you, or if you can't handle it, you got the wrong guy up here. (laughs) I can tell you that right now. But I challenge you to find me someone who's in a position to make that call. We want to be a church where people won't receive judgment here. We want a church where they'll receive grace, where they'll receive forgiveness. And when we do that, God's going to lift us up, and He's going to give us the abundant life. That's where freedom in Christ comes from. We believe that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. And that's the lie of Satan. You know why I love my wife? Other than the obvious fact that she's extremely beautiful. That always bugged her when I'd say, she goes, what was the first thing you loved about me? I said, you are super beautiful. (laughs) Really? Really? I said, yeah, honey, I'm a guy, (laughs) I just came in, you know, I saw you, you were pretty, and I thought, hey, I want to talk to her. But I found out there was a lot more to it than that, because you know over the years what I found out about her, is that she found out about me, everything about me, every good, bad, and ugly thing about me, she still loves me. You know what I love about my kids? They know everything about me, they grew up with me around, they know it all, in fact, I've. Threatened them within an inch of their life to not say anything, Dick. <laughs> Keep this stuff to yourself. But they still love me. And you know why I love this church? Because you still love me. There's an old hymn, one of my favorites. I used to sing in a gospel quartet when I was a teenager. And we sang this old hymn. You may have heard it. It's called Who Am I? I love that song. It says, Who am I that a king should live and die for? Who am I that I should pray, not my will thine for? The answer I may never know, why he ever loved me so, but to an old rugged cross he'd go for. Who am I? Who am I that he would do that for me? I'm a sinner, plain and simple, a sinner who's living and serving only by the grace and the mercy of the Almighty God. You'll only be free to run. You'll only be free to be faithful and to serve and to live the abundant life when you are authentic with God and with everyone else. Let's pray, shall we? God, make us real. You see who we really are. Now, Father, hear us confess it with our mouth and to you and others from this day forward. Free us from the bondage in which we're imprisoned. Give us the abundant life you have promised by your grace and your mercy. Amen. Thank you all for coming tonight. God bless you.